So we're looking at Zechariah 13, verses 1 through 9. And if you remember, the book of Zechariah is written to the exiles returning from Babylon. They've been in captivity. They return home. Their land's destroyed. They need to rebuild the temple. And they begin the work of the temple. They're discouraged by it. God says, don't just do the work of the ministry. Return to me. I want your heart. And I I want you to see that I have plans and purposes for you, that I am sovereign, I am in control, and I am doing something mighty and awesome, and it's beyond what you can imagine. And all of the book of Zechariah points forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. It points forward to the coming Messiah who would rescue the people once once and for all, who would rescue them not only from their oppressive enemies, but from their sin, and would bring them peace and prosperity, and would bless them and encourage them in their walk with the Lord. That ultimately this book is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, by the way, is true of every book of the Old Testament. Every book of the Bible, they all point forward to Jesus. And I pray that as you read the scriptures, you'll learn and you'll grow in time over beginning to figure out and learning how to figure out how to see Jesus on every page. Because He is there. So with that in mind, let's look at our text this morning. Zechariah 13, 1-9. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Also it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I am not a prophet. I am a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between between your arms? Then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So as we get into chapter 13, you're going to notice that there's a clear distinction, or you should notice there's a clear distinction between verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 9. In fact, many commentators choose to address these sections separately, as though they're completely separate units of thought. However, I hope that as we work through the text this morning, you see that though these two units use different language and they appear different, that they're complementary, that they fit together nicely. The first section, verses 1 through 6, deals with God's promise to cleanse and purify. The land. He says, I'm going to cleanse and I'm going to purify the land. And the second section, verses 7 through 9, addresses the means by which God is going to do that. So, with that in mind, let's jump into the first point in our sermon outline. The first point is number one, God's promise. Number one, God's promise. 
Look at verses 1-6. through As I mentioned here in these verses, we see the promise that God will cleanse and purify Israel. Verse 1 begins by saying, In that day, this is the day when Christ returns. Remember, these last chapters of Zechariah is very much focused on the return of Christ to reign and rule on earth. It says, In that day, the time of judgment, the time when Christ returns, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. In order to understand this, we cannot separate this verse from its context. We have to understand what the context in which he's writing this is. And while this verse starts a new chapter, we would do well to remember that these chapter divisions are man-made. They're useful, but they're man-made. I mean, imagine if we didn't have the chapter divisions, and I said, you need to turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, you know, the part where it says, uh, in that day a fountain will be opened, and for the house of David, and for the, you'd have a hard time finding that. It's a lot easier to say, open your Bibles to chapter 13. So the divisions are useful, but they weren't originally there. Zechariah didn't write these individual chapters. He didn't write 14 chapters. So really, verse 1 is connected with what we saw last week. And I debated, even in my sermon preparation last week, do I want to preach through 13.1, or do I want to save it for, for this coming week, for this week? But ultimately, I wanted you to see the connection, and I wanted to start off this week with a connection to last week. So in order to understand the context, I want you to look at chapter 12, verses 10 through 14, the verses that immediately precede it. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. The verses 10 through 14, if you remember from last week, provide key truths about salvation. Remember, we, last week we saw that salvation is number one, it's a, work, it's a work of God, that it's a gift of God, it's a pouring out of His Spirit, it's Him instituting this gift, giving us this gift. The two, it's a gift of grace, that it's unmerited favor. Thirdly, it's a turning from sin that He produces in us a spirit of supplication whereby we seek the Lord and His forgiveness. We repent of our sin. But it's not just a turning away. Fourthly, it's also a turning toward Jesus. He says they will look upon Him whom they have pierced. So it's a looking to the One who died in our place. That it's offered to all. Remember last week we we heard that it's offered to all from the royal families and the priesthood to every family in between. From David and Nathan to the, the priesthood, the Levites, and every family, he says. But we also learn that not only is it offered to all, but it's granted to individuals. Every person must receive him as the good shepherd by themselves and for themselves. Every husband, every wife, every child. That it's a personal salvation. Every person must individually receive Him 
as their Savior. So it's then that we jump into verse 1 where he says, and in that day, when that happens, a fountain is going to be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity that with salvation comes this saving from sin and this washing of oneself, this, this cleansing that happens within the individual. The word fountain refers to a spring or a well, and it conveys the idea of a constant and steady supply of water. I don't want to overanalyze the text here because streams are a picture that's used throughout the scriptures as well, but streams in Israel dry up. This is not something that will dry up. Instead, it's a constant and steady supply of water. It's a spring. And this language may seem a bit foreign to us because it's so far removed from our culture. In our culture, we take water for granted. I get up here every Sunday and I have a bottle of water, right? And I, I, we take it for granted. If you go to Israel, it's not that way at all. The land of Israel is a desert. In fact, we have so much water here in Maine that we bottle it up and we send it to other parts of the country in the world. We bottle tons of water. And we use almost as much water uh, for, for making snow in the winter as we do for bottling it and sending it out to other places. We just have an abundance of water. And by the way, don't believe the reports that say it's going to dry up. There's no chance of that. We have plenty of water. But that's not the case in Israel, where it's a desert region. And the idea that water is seen as a tremendous blessing should not be lost on us. In fact, the Old Testament frequently connects this word fountain with the idea of blessings, and even refers to the Lord Himself as a fountain. We read in Jeremiah 2.13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, things that hold water, broken cisterns though, that don't hold water. He says, they've forsaken me, the fountain who has who's an abundant supply of water, they've forsaken me to get a cistern that holds water, but it's broken. It doesn't even hold water. It's full of cracks and holes. He says in Jeremiah 17, 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken who? They've forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. The Lord is pictured as this fountain of living water. And furthermore, in the Old Testament, we see water pictured as a means of ceremonial cleansing. It's not to say that water in the Old Testament, was a means of true cleansing. It was meant to point forward to a greater reality. It couldn't actually wash away anyone's sins. But it was used to point to the cleansing that was needed and could only be provided by God. That's why David wrote in Psalm 51, after after the incident with Bathsheba, he wrote in Psalm 51, he said, Be gracious to me, O God, according to Your loving kindness, according to the greatness of Your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. You see, David understood the depths of his sin and his need to be forgiven, and he cried out to God to wash him and cleanse him. And all the washing and cleansing in the Old Testament is not meant to to cleanse people from their sins. It's meant to point to the one who can cleanse them from their sins. And in the same way in the church, we have this act of baptism where we, we baptize believers 
But baptism doesn't wash away anyone's sin. Instead, it's meant to point to a reality that has already happened. That the Lord has washed away one's sin. He's made one clean. And therefore, we're putting on a play. We're painting a picture of that reality. We're acting it out, so to speak, to bring Him glory and to recognize our need for His grace. So all this Old Testament washing was meant to do that. So when God says, in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity, the picture is clear. They're striking words. The word translated sin in our text carries the idea of stumbling or missing the mark. It's the same word that we see in Isaiah 65 too, where we read this. The one who does not reach the age of 100, does not reach, that's the word sin, right? and some versions actually say the sinner who doesn't get to 100 years old. So the one who does not reach the age of 100 will, thought to be, will be thought to be accursed. So the idea is of not reaching something, of falling short. It's also the same word we see in Proverbs 19 too. And if you're reading the King James, that verse says, also that the soul be without knowledge, it is not good. He says the soul without knowledge is not good, and he that hasteth Hasteth with his feet, sinneth. So he says, he that hurries with his feet, sins. If you read it in the English Standard Version, it's a little bit more uh, modern English. It says, desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet, misses his way. So if you're hasty with your feet, you sin. The English Standard Version says, if you're hasty with your feet, you miss your way. Last week I was running up the stairs after... I was late getting to the prayer time before the service, so I decided I'd run up the stairs. And I decided I'd just run, you know, take a few steps at a time. And as you know, those stairs are hard enough, right, when you're taking a single stair at a time. Well, I missed a step, and I, I fell, and I started to slide back down the stairs. And I don't remember who was at the top of the stairs, Mary or somebody, and they were looking at me like, <laughs> they're just shaking their head and said, I think they said something to the effect of, slow down, young man, right? Like, what are you doing? Because I was hasty with my feet and I missed the mark. I completely missed a step. And my foot decided to come down, but there was nothing there for it to land on. And instead, I think my face probably hit a step. And that's the picture that is here. Whoever's hasty with his feet, he misses his ways. Sin is missing your steps. It's missing the mark. It's a failure to reach or to stumble it's failing to live a life of holiness and perfect obedience to God. And that's the reality for all of us. Scripture testifies to that fact when it says things like, we all like sheep have gone astray. And that even our filthy, even our righteous deeds are but filthy rags, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But notice that God says He will open a fountain not only for sin, but also for impurity. The word impurity is often translated uncleanness. It's the same word we read in 2 Chronicles 29.5 where he says, Listen to me, O Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out of the holy, the holy place. Carry this impurity, this uncleanness out of the holy place. Get rid of it. Remove it from your midst. So impurity refers not so much to the act of falling short, but to the very nature of being unclean or defiled. Thus what God is saying is that He's going to open a fountain, an endless source of life that will remove their uncleanness. He's going to forgive their sin, 
but he's not only going to forgive their sin, he's also going to remove their sin and make them holy. This is undoubtedly the promise of Ezekiel 36. And what Ezekiel pointed forward to as well. He said, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, so he says, I'm going to sprinkle you clean. Moreover, I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to put a new spirit in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I'm not just going to forgive your sin. I'm going to cleanse and purify you. So the promise of verse 1 is that God will forgive their sin and purify their hearts. And then in verses 2 through 6, we see the result of that happening. So that's all verse 1. In verses 2 through 6, we see the result of that happening. What does that look like? Look at Zechariah 13, 2 through 6. Verse 2. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. In other words, he says, I am going to cleanse the land of false worship. There will be no more idols. You're not going to build an idol and bow down to worship it anymore. No stone, no wood, nothing that takes the place of God. Instead, I alone will be God in the land. You will worship the one true God and me alone. He goes on and says, And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord, and his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. In other words, there will be such a, 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 a detesting of false prophecy that even fathers and mothers will not tolerate it. They'll say, They'll say, no, that is not true. And they will even slay their children if they so much as proclaim things that are not true and say that things came from the Lord when they didn't. He says, I'm going to truly cleanse the land. Verse 4, he says, And it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies and will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. The prophets, they'll be ashamed. There'll be no more prophets who say, yeah, I speak for the Lord when they really don't. Instead, they'll be ashamed that they did that at some point in time. And they'll no longer put on a hairy robe. They're not going to put on a robe, dress up like a prophet, and say, yes, I'm a prophet. Instead, he says, he will say, I am not a prophet. I'm a tiller of the ground. I'm but a slave that it would be better to be seen as a slave than to be seen as a false prophet. He says, I'm going to cleanse the land. And verse 6, And someone will come to this one who was a prophet, who was a false prophet before, and they'll say, What are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. This is a hard verse to understand. Uh, I don't want to go too far here, but I think what he's saying is this that he ultimately will confess his wounds, that his wounds are the result of being struck from his false prophetic utterances. That ultimately he will say, you're right, these wounds that I have are because I've prophesied falsely. That there will be a removal of all false prophesying. There will be a removal of all idols from the land, that the land will be purified. So the point of verses 2-6 through is that in that day when Christ returns, not only will, be, will the land be cleansed from idolatry, but the people's hearts will be changed. They'll be purified. So that they'll no longer tolerate the false prophets. And this is a picture, by the way, of what He does in and through us in salvation. 
You know, when I became a believer, it wasn't as though I was walking along the path deep in my sin and he just cleansed my sin. He also picked me up and put me on a new path. That's what he does for us. He not only forgives us, but he also cleanses us. He not only saved me in that day, but he is still saving me. That he is making me more like Christ day by day by day as we fight sin and we battle sin to honor the Lord. So having seen God's promise, number one, God's promise, and ultimately that He's going to forgive their sin and purify their hearts. Now let's consider number two, God's provision. Look at verses 7-8 through eight with me. Verses 7 and 8, He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. The term my associate conveys the idea of one who is near to me. He says, one who is so close to me, he's a, he's a fellow of mine. And this is a clear reference to the Messiah. He is the one who is referenced in Zechariah 12.10 where he says, they will look on me whom they've pierced and they will mourn for Him. There's such a close association, he says, between who God is and who the coming Messiah is that they will recognize that they're the same person, the same being. And we, we begin to see this veiled in the Old Testament. The Old Testament points forward to it but doesn't say it as clearly as we see it unveiled in the New Testament, texts like John 1, 1, right? Where Jesus says, in the be- or Scripture says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then goes on to say, and Jesus is the Word. Jesus is God, is what the New Testament teaches, and what the Old Testament pointed forward to, that this coming Messiah would be God Himself, that He would be the one who would be the Good Shepherd, who would ultimately be rejected but would suffer and die for the people's sins. So God is speaking in Zechariah 13, and He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And He goes on to say, Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And this phrase, strike the the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, is more accurately understood in your other English translations. So if you have the ESV or the NIV or the King James, I think it renders it more appropriately. It says, Strike the sheep, or strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Not so that, but and. Strike the shepherd and the sheep. The natural result of that is that the sheep will be scattered when he is struck. We saw this in Zechariah 11, remember? Zechariah puts on this play where he acts out the part of a shepherd. He puts on the clothes of a shepherd. He grabs these two staffs and the people reject the, the good shepherd so that the staff of favor, the staff of grace is cut into pieces. And the staff of bonds or unity is cut into pieces. The unity between the people and God is broken. The unity between the people and themselves, each other, is broken because God's grace is no longer active upon them because they rejected the Good Shepherd and thus they're scattered. And this is a picture, this is a reality of what Israel is today. They are sheep without a shepherd. And God says, there's coming a day when I will return and I will work mightily and miraculously in the nation of Israel. That many of the Jewish people will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be saved. Not by some other means of salvation, but through salvation in Jesus Christ and Him alone. That scattering, the result of that scattering that happens, or that is happening, is that God has raised up a shepherd who will not care for the perishing, 
not seek the scattered, not heal the broken, not sustain the ones standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. God says, I will not shepherd them. Instead, I'll give them the shepherd that they desire. I'll scatter them instead. The picture in these latter chapters of Zechariah is that of God removing His hand of blessing and protection because the people have rejected Him. And ultimately, we see from our text that He will bring judgment on those who continue to reject Him. Remember, the book of Zechariah offers great hope. It points forward to the hope of salvation. And as we saw before, there are many who will look upon Him whom they have pierced, and they will repent over their sin and turn to Him as their Savior. However, while salvation is offered to all, it must be received personally. So our text goes on to tell us the fate of those who continue in their rejection of the Good Shepherd. Verses 7 and 8 continue and say, And I will turn my hand against the little ones. I will discipline the helpless little sheep. Those little sheep who are lost, who are scattered without a shepherd, I'll discipline them. Why? It'll come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. Those who continue to reject the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will perish. That's why Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That the wages of sin is death. And that if one goes on continuing to reject the Messiah, that they will die. However, not all hope is lost, for our text continues and says this, but the, but the third, so two-thirds will be cut off and perish, but a third will be left in the land. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is refined. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. You see, there will be a remnant of those who had once rejected the Messiah. This third part that have rejected the Messiah, but in the midst of suffering, they will turn to Him. And they will look upon Him whom they have pierced, and God will bring them through the fire. And He'll not only forgive their sin, but He'll also purify their hearts in obedience to Him. This is precisely what John the Baptist was speaking of in Matthew 3 when he said this. He said, As for me, I baptize you with water. Literal water. It's just water. It's all I'm doing but I'm pointing forward to something better. He said, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, that you're going to truly be made new, not just water, but he's going to wash away your sin and he's going to cleanse away, he's going to take away all the impurities. You see the connection there between this fountain that will be opened for sin and impurity? And he goes on and says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will, be, he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. A third will be gathered into the barn. But two thirds will burn up with unquenchable fire, is what he's saying. That when Christ returns, that the nation of Israel, many will look upon Him and be saved, and many will be ultimately destroyed. And Paul says, so all Israel, all believing Israel, will be saved. The point is not everybody who's ever been a Jew. It's those who look upon the Messiah and believe all of them will be saved. 
And that's the promise that Zechariah gives, that God gives through the prophet Zechariah to these people who have returned from their land. He says, yeah, there's, there's coming a day when there's this, this coming shepherd that we're looking forward to, and, but people are going to reject him. But even in the midst of that rejection, there's going to be more opportunity. There's going to be trials and suffering. And even after that rejection, that initial rejection of this one who is coming, there will be an opportunity to repent, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in this good shepherd and be cleansed from sin and purified in heart by him. So this should have been a message of great hope. And yet many still reject the Messiah. And many, when he returns, will still reject him. So by way of review, we have God's promise, the forgiving of their sin, and the purifying of their hearts. And then we have, secondly, God's provision, that it happens as they turn to him in the midst of suffering and trials, in the midst of the fire, as they look to the one who is the good shepherd. So here's the question. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all this to our lives. I don't want to just talk about what's going to happen in the end times when the, Jews, when the Jews turn to Jesus Christ. I don't want to just talk about what's going to happen for Israel without thinking about how do we live in light of this today. We understand that this was, an, this was a message of great hope for the people of Zechariah's day, but it was also a message of repentance. That there is no hope without turning to Jesus. I'm not going to soft soap the gospel message. I'm not going to come up here and say that the gospel is that Jesus loves everybody and everybody's doing well and everybody's going to heaven. The message of the gospel is one of repentance. Turn away from your sin. Turn toward Jesus. Turn to the one who is the good shepherd. And that same message applies to us today. So though this was written to the Jewish people, that in that day the day that the Good Shepherd returns, it has application for us. For God is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. Like the rest of Zechariah, we see this partial fulfillment in the church and we see the ultimate fulfillment in later time. That the church lives this out. That the church has this opportunity to experience God's promise, the forgiveness of sin, and to have their hearts purified But it is only as they turn to God in the midst of the fires of life that God, in His grace and mercy, often turns up the heat so that we will look to Him. So if you're an unbeliever, I'd encourage you, do not reject the Good Shepherd. Look upon Him who was pierced. Pierced for the fountain, so that the fountain may be open for sin and and impurity. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're here today because you love Christ, you love His Word, you love His Gospel. And I would encourage you to call upon Him in the midst of trouble, knowing that He will answer. This text clearly says, call upon Me and I will answer. He says, they will call on My name and I will answer them. That in the midst of trial, God has promised He will answer us. That often the trials serve no purpose other than for us to call upon Jesus. And I hear people all the time in the church and otherwise saying, I'm just trying to figure out why God's doing this. Why is God bringing me? He's got something in it. And it's like, yes, to call upon Jesus. And it may have no greater purpose than that, but He wants you to call upon His name in the midst of this trial. 
And as you call upon Jesus, know that He will answer. So rest fully in His grace, knowing that He will cleanse and purify your hearts, that He has purposes in this. That He's going to cleanse your heart from sin. He's going to purify your heart from all unrighteousness. That it is often in the midst of trials that our sin becomes most evident. We begin to realize how much we need to grow and change. You know, it's very easy when life is going well to think we've got it all together. But when everything starts to fall apart, when trials come our way, it is then that we begin to think about where do I need to repent? Where do I need to grow and change? How do I need to chase Jesus more? How do I need to live for His glory? So as hard as it is to say, I would encourage you to praise Him for the fires of life. Praise Him knowing that He has promised that He will work all things together for good for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose, but that good is to make us more like Jesus. And that ultimately, the the way we become like Jesus is often through trials and suffering. That's why in 1 Peter he says this, 1 Peter 1, verses 6-7, through In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That the trials sift the wheat from the chaff. That the trials of life burn away the dross. That they remove impurities. That's why James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that these trials are going to produce in you this perseverance of faith. And ultimately, you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, is his point. So we rest fully in his grace, all while knowing that suffering, the fiery trials of life, that, remove, that, that they're going to remove the idols of our heart, just like they removed the idols in the land of Israel. The idols were taken away. That oftentimes the trials cause us to say, I have a problem with idolatry. I've put something above God. I'm telling you folks, if there's anything that I've learned these last few years, God is not impressed with our idols. And when we set up an idol, even if it's a good thing, it may be your marriage, it may be your kids, it may be success at work, God is not going to bow down to your idol. He will tear down your idol. He's not impressed by it. That God removes the idols of our heart just like He removed, He says He's going to remove the idols in the nation of Israel in the last days. And in the midst of these trials, He causes us to despise teaching that is empty and false. That it's easy to have empty teaching and to have teaching that talks about how life is good and God desires your best life now until you lose your job, until you're wondering where your next meal's coming from until your kids disown you. It's in those moments that you say, I need something bigger. I need something better. I don't need some preacher standing up and telling me that God has a wonderful plan for my life. I want more than that. I want the truth of the Gospel. And in the midst of trials, God cleanses our hearts and gives us a desire for the truth just like He will in the last days to the nation of Israel. They'll despise false prophecy. And in the midst of trials... I promise you, you will despise false prophecy. You'll despise that which is not rooted in the truth of the gospel. And you'll want something far better. So my encouragement is, call upon Him. Trust Him. Rest in His grace. Knowing that these trials 
are going to cleanse you and they're going to purify you. They're going to give you a love for the truth and a desire to honor Him like you've never experienced before. So while we don't pray for trials, we try, we, we seek the Lord's favor, we seek His blessing, we get our hearts right so that trials need not come. When they come, we recognize, God, You are sovereign, You are gracious, and You love me, and I will praise You in the midst of this trial. I will rejoice greatly knowing that You are working to make my faith real and strong. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, thank You for the graciousness of suffering, of trials. God, I pray that You would help us to be reminded of Your desire to remove the idols in our hearts like You will one day remove the idols from the land. God, that You would remind us day by day of Your desire to help us run to the truth of the Gospel and flee from that which is empty and false, like You will one day remove all false prophecy from the land. God, give us grace to endure the trials. May our faith be real. May it be strengthened and not burned up because it is rooted fully in You. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.